0: Read verses 1 to 30 just a moment ago. So we're going to pick it up in verse 31 and read to the end of the chapter. Before we do that, let me just make one brief comment. The last few verses in this chapter are transitional, they help to bridge uh, chapter 17 and chapter 18. So we're going to read them this morning, and then, Lord willing, next Sunday we'll see how they bridge the story of David's victory with his life before Saul. So let's pick it up in verse 31. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church through his inspired author. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go fight against this Philistine, to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. The Philistine moved forward and came near David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shaarim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem and put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And David said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Amen. Let's pray now and ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word. Father, Father, surely You are good above all things. You have been good to us, God, in revealing Yourself in the creation that no one has an excuse that we might know there is a God. You have been good to us in revealing Yourself in Your Word so that we might know what this Creator, powerful, mighty God is like. And You have been good to us, Father, most supremely in revealing Yourself in Your Son. We ask now that You would give us Grace, Father, and illumination by the Holy Spirit that we might see the truth of Christ in the pages of the Scriptures. We might be encouraged, Father, to trust Him. That we might be convicted, Father, of the ways in which we have failed to trust Him. And that we might be strengthened, God, to persevere in that faith until the very last day. Father, I pray that You would keep me from error and I pray that You would give Your people discernment. That we would know the truth, God. That we would not just know it, but that we would hold fast to it and obey it. And live in light of it. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. Picture a battlefield. On the one side, there is an imposing enemy armed with limitless strength. This enemy has no visible weaknesses. His defenses are indestructible. And he's undefeated in combat. On the other side, there is a cowering army. They too have warriors and weapons, but their warriors are afraid and their weapons are no match against their enemy. This army appears hopeless and helpless, destined for a life of bondage that leads only to death. But then picture in the middle of that battlefield a solitary figure, one man. He stands with confidence against the enemy. But surprisingly, this solitary figure goes into battle without any physical armor, without a sword, without even a shield. He appears weak and ill equipped to fight. How can he take down such an invincible foe without any visible strength to match his enemy? But then the unthinkable happens. The solitary figure, this one man, conquers his imposing enemy. And he even uses his enemy's own weapon to deliver the fatal blow. And in response, the cowering army finds new courage through the leadership of their champion, and they charge out to spread the news of his victory all over the land. What a stunning reversal. The tables have been completely turned. The mighty have been struck down, and the weak have been raised up through the victory of another. Now let me ask you, what have I just described? Well, on the one hand, it's of course the events of our chapter, 1 Samuel 17. It's David's victory over Goliath. And yet, on the other hand, what I've just described is the storyline of the entire Bible. Think about it, friends. An oppressed people too weak to face their enemy are rescued through the work of another, a champion who does what they cannot do. Friends, that's the Bible in one sentence. That's the Gospel in summary form. Christ crushing sin and death in order to save His people who had no hope of saving themselves. And therein lies the significance of this chapter. 1 Samuel 17 is the Bible in miniature. The entire storyline of the Scripture is condensed into this scene of David versus Goliath. You see, this chapter is not primarily a lesson in courage. It's not a reminder to never count out the underdog. And it's not the divine formula for conquering our fears. 1 Samuel 17 is about God's determination to save His helpless people through the work of a deliverer who does what His people cannot and will not do for themselves. but I don't want you to simply take my word for it. I want you to see this theme for yourselves in the text of God's Word. So take just a moment and look at the big picture of the chapter with me. If you notice, the actual fighting between David and Goliath receives very little attention in the chapter. It's only two verses, verses 48 and 49. It's 36 words. That's it. What gets the most attention is not the fighting, but the words of David and Goliath. At key moments in the chapter, we find David and Goliath not engaging in combat, but speaking. And at these key moments, there is one word in particular repeated over and over. The word defy. Defy. That word runs like a thread through the chapter. Verse 10, verse 26, verse 36. And if we follow that thread to the end, we find the theme. Notice verse 45. The last link in the thread. David is speaking to Goliath and listen to what he says. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Friends, do you hear the primary concern of the chapter? David is teaching us here. God's name is on the line. God's name is on the line. Is the Lord the true God who alone has the power to save? Or is Goliath right to taunt Israel and defy her God? You see, this this is about so much more than courage and underdogs and conquering fears. What's at stake in this battle is nothing less than the glory of God in the salvation of His people. What's at stake in this chapter is our hope. That's the theme. Now, with that theme as our guide, we're ready to go to work. I'd like to draw your attention to three truths this morning from this memorable chapter. There's much we could say. I want us to focus on three truths together. These truths build on one another and, taken together cumulatively, they answer the challenge to God's glory. The first comes in verses 1 to 11, where we find the enemy who mocks God's name. The enemy who mocks God's name. These opening verses set the scene for the battle, but perhaps what's most striking is the amount of detail devoted to the Philistine champion. Of all of the figures in the Old Testament, Goliath of Gath receives one of the longest and most detailed descriptions of anybody in the Old Testament record. The effect is to take us to the very edge of the battlefield so we get a sense of the fear that grips God's people. Notice Goliath's appearance, verse 4. His height was six cubits in a span. You can read for decades over how tall that is. Some people say it was seven and a half. Some people say it was nine and a half. Is seven and a half that different than nine and a half? That's a big dude. And that's the point. His, his height is imposing. I think it was nine and a half, by the way. But either way, this is not a guy you want to mess with. Goliath's height makes him basically unapproachable. Think of trying to fight him. He would get to you before you would ever lay a finger on him. His appearance is imposing. Notice also Goliath's armament. Verses 5 and 6. Head to toe, he's covered in bronze armor. This armor is called a coat of mail. That's not the best translation. It's better to think of it like scales on a snake. It's interlocking and overlapping so that there's no weak point. You can hit him in the body and it's not going to hurt him. What's more, Goliath's weapons are absolutely lethal. Notice verse 7. The head of his spear weighed 15 pounds. That's not a spear, that's a missile. If Goliath unleashes this weapon, you've got no chance. His appearance is imposing and his armament makes him seem invincible. Goliath's most important feature, however, is his last one, his attitude. Notice verse 8, where Goliath taunts the Israelites. Why have you come out to draw up for a battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? In other words, what are you waiting for? What did you come out here to do? Goliath knows Israel is afraid. So he taunts them day after day. But at the same time, this is more than a taunt. Goliath is also mocking Israel's God. Notice verse 10. I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. So there's the first instance of our key word, defy. Defy. It's used throughout the Old Testament to describe God's enemies who blaspheme the Lord's name. It's a fascinating search. You can go into your Bible software and type in defy and look up all the instances in the Old Testament. It's fascinating. It's used of God's enemies who blaspheme the Lord's name. And that's what Goliath is doing here. This is so key, friends. Goliath is preaching out there on the battlefield and he's preaching a false gospel. He's declaring to Israel, your God is nothing. He has no power. And His promises are as good as this dust I'm about to make you eat. His appearance is imposing. His armaments are invincible. And His attitude mocks the living God. Friends, it's that last feature, Goliath's attitude, that should get our attention. Goliath is more than a Philistine. He's a representative figure. Goliath is the latest in a long line of enemies who oppress God's people and mock God's name. Goliath's lineage stretches back to Nahash in chapter 11 of this book, to the Ammonites and the Midianites and the Moabites in the book of Judges, to Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, and even back to the serpent in the garden. You see, Goliath's voice is the serpent's voice. That's why his words get emphasized. What did the serpent do in the garden? He spoke. What does Goliath do? He speaks. He speaks lies the serpent was crafty with his words while Goliath is crass with his blasphemy but make no mistake friends it's the same voice it's the same voice Goliath represents the satanic opposition the world brings against God and get, and against his people and that's why we should listen to the chapter because Goliath's downfall teaches us about the victory that we need in our day Now try to put yourself in Israel's place at this point. Who should be your champion? The one to answer this imposing Philistine? Well, the answer should be Saul. Think about it, friends. Goliath is gigantic. He's nine and a half feet tall. But who's the tallest Israelite? Saul, remember? Chapter 9, verse 2. From his shoulders upwards, Saul was taller than any of the people. So if Israel has a giant to fight this other giant, it's Saul. And yet, where do we find Saul? Verse 11, he's dismayed and greatly afraid. And why is Saul afraid? Why why is he cowering behind the front lines? Because Saul is looking only at appearances. All he sees is a giant with invincible armor and indestructible weapons. And yet, what did the Lord just say in chapter 16? Do not look on his appearances or on the height of his stature. Yes, Goliath is terrifying. And yes, he appears invincible. But here's the key. God is not bound by appearances. God's kingdom is not ruled by the tallest or the strongest, but by the humble and the weak and the frail who trust only in the Lord. Let's not miss this, brothers and sisters. To answer the challenges of our day, God, God's people must see things as God sees them. Oh, how vital it is to have a God-centered perspective on the world. There is nothing more practical and more necessary than having our minds shaped by the truth of God's Word and the reality of who God is. Are you building that kind of mindset, friends? Are you cultivating and laboring to see the world as God sees it? Or like Saul... Have the eyes of your heart become captured with appearances, whether for good or for bad? I pray, we learn, I pray we learn from these opening verses. Saul is afraid because he walks by sight and not by faith. May the Lord give us grace to not follow in those footsteps. So, where does that leave God's people by the end of verse 11? They're oppressed by an enemy who mocks God's name and their supposed champion is paralyzed with fear. There doesn't seem to be much hope, but mercifully, the chapter is not done. The Lord is not finished. Our second truth introduces the Lord's answer. In verses 12 to 27, we meet the champion who gives hope to God's people. The champion who gives hope to God's people. Now we might be tempted to go quickly through these verses. There's a lot of background here and we're eager to get to the action of the battle. But if we did that, friends, we would miss the encouragement God has woven throughout this section. In subtle but clear ways, David brings hope to the people of God. Let's let's notice some of those ways together. First off, there's the hope of David's lineage. Notice verse 12. It reads like another formal introduction to David. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. Some folks question why we need another introduction to David considering we just met him in chapter 16. But that question misses the hope of verse 12. Do you remember what God said about the tribe of Judah? Way back in Genesis 49, the Lord promised that a great king would arise from Judah. Well, what does verse 12 give us? A son. But not just any son. A son of Judah. You see, that's the significance, friends. David's introduction in verse 12 is meant to contrast with Saul in verse 11. Saul, the recognized king, is afraid, but there's another man coming, and he's from Judah no less. And this man will be the Lord's anointed. David's lineage, which is small, brings us hope. Notice also the hope of David's status. What stands out about David's description? Well, nothing, really. Nothing. He's the youngest of eight sons. He was the forgotten son in chapter 16. His job is to watch over some sheep. Compare this to Goliath's description and it seems pretty lopsided. Goliath is imposing. David is small. Goliath is an experienced warrior. David is an experienced shepherd. If Goliath's description is overwhelming, then David's is underwhelming. And that's precisely the point. Again, remember the truth of the previous chapter. The Lord delights to work in unexpected ways through unlikely means. And that makes David's small status all the more hopeful. Oh, friends, before we go on, let me just pause here to say, never underestimate the Lord's work in your life just because it's small. Never underestimate what the Lord's doing just because it looks small. So often, those small beginnings are the seed of a massive harvest of hope. Never underestimate it because it looks small. That's how God works. David is small. His his arrival is quiet. But that lowly status brings us hope. Finally, notice the hope of David's zeal. We have his lineage. We get his status. Now notice the hope of David's zeal. Look at verse 17. David's father sends him on a mission to check on his brothers. But in God's providence, the mission has another more important purpose. It allows David to hear Goliath. Speaking. Notice how verse 23 ends. Goliath came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And then this sentence. And David heard him. It's such a key moment, friends. David hears the blasphemy. He hears the mockery. But that's not all David hears. Notice verses 24 and 25. David also hears the fear of Israel's army. All the men flee. Some army... All the men flee, and as they run away, they speak of a great reward Saul has offered to the man who kills Goliath. The reward is incredible in scope, and it reveals Israel's desperation. Their fear is so great, Saul has to bribe someone to do something. But then comes verse 26. Oh, what a difference verse 26 makes, both for Israel and for us. Did you notice verse 26 is the first time David speaks in the book? It's true. These are David's first words ever recorded in the Bible. It's the first thing he says. And what do David's first words reveal? His zeal for the glory of God what he says he asks for clarification about the reward it's because he can't fathom why it would be so great he's taken aback that such a substantial sum would be offered to do this task and the next phrase reveals why listen again to David's words and hear how zealous this boy is for the Lord God listen to what he says for this uncircumcised who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God Friends, do you hear the difference God makes in this moment? Saul sees an invincible giant. Saul is afraid because he's just looking at the appearances. David sees just another Philistine who doesn't know the Lord. It's as if David looks around and says, Have you men forgotten who you are? You are the Lord's people. What's more, have you forgotten who the Lord is? Our God made the heavens and the earth. He crushed mighty Pharaoh. He parted the Red Sea. He brought down Jericho's walls. He gave us this land. Surely you're not afraid of one Philistine. He's nothing compared to God. You see, David is zealous for the Lord because he's not looking at the outward appearances, he sees things from God's perspective. And from God's perspective, it's just one man who the Lord's going to crush in a moment. I, I want to I stop here and I want to hammer this. It's the same message that I've been preaching for six years. And I'm going to keep preaching it until the Lord kills me or He comes back. It's one message. I want to emphasize to you how valuable and practical it is that we know God. Know God. Before we think about how to do this or how to do that, that we just know the Lord. That we know Him in all of His splendor. What separates David from these other men? Why is he going out to battle and they're not? Well, you could say it's just that David is more courageous. But that misses what's actually going on. What separates David is that he knows God in a deep way and then he takes the truth of God and he applies it to the situation of his life. The formula is actually quite simple. This chapter is not hard to figure out. If God is true, then Goliath is nothing. That's the whole chapter. If God is true, then Goliath is nothing. By faith, David views life through the lens of God. God. Brothers and sisters, the same must be true of us or we're going to be pushed to and fro by every wind and movement of doctrine. We'll be knocked over by even the smallest trials. The same must be true of us. We talked about that God-centered perspective earlier and now we see how it works out in practice. We take what we know to be true about God and we use it as the filter for understanding life. If God is good, then this illness cannot be His punishment on me. If God is faithful, then He will not leave me without what I need. If God is gracious, then He will not withhold forgiveness when I confess. If God is unchanging, then His Word will never fail me. If God is patient, then He won't be frustrated that I'm praying the same prayer again about the same thing again. If God is holy, then He won't quit until He makes me more like His Son. Do you see the difference God makes? Only the reality of God is able to answer the imposing questions and invincible enemies of life. Too often, we find our faith failing because we're trying to fight with earthly weapons. We're trying to answer the trials of life with tips and strategies and techniques. And we leave God on the sidelines. Friends, the life of faith is hard if you haven't figured that out. It's hard to be a Christian. It's hard to persevere in the faith. It's so hard, in fact, that only the truth of God is deep enough and strong enough to sustain us in the battle. Friends, if you don't know God, and if you're not putting His truth to practice in your life, then the time of failing is not an if, but a when. So I ask you again, are you cultivating that God-centered perspective? Each day, are you aiming to know God more and more? So many times people have asked me, Pastor, I wish my Bible reading were more practical and more relevant to my everyday life. And I say, oh, I feel that too. Most days when I open the Bible to read, it feels like nothing. Amen. Amen? Amen? Just one thing that you should do. When you open to read, instead of looking for something that's practical and relevant, look for something about God. What's true about Him? In these verses. And rest upon that. David's zeal for the Lord reminds us just how vital this God-centered perspective is. So when you put all of these reasons together, lineage, status, zeal, David's role in the chapter becomes quite clear. This is the champion who will stand up for God's name. This is the Deliverer who will answer Goliath's taunts. The the people cannot deliver themselves. So in His merciful, gracious providence, the Lord raises up a champion who brings hope to God's people. As the chapter keeps going, we see David doesn't inspire hope in everyone. Notice verse 28. David's brother, Eliab, attempts to put the young man in his place. There are echoes of Joseph's story here, aren't there? where his older brothers also despised him. There are echoes of Christ's story here, where his own people, his brothers according to the flesh, despised him. But David's undeterred. He dismisses his brother's criticism for what it is, unfounded jealousy, and he continues to ex- express his zeal for the Lord. Eventually, David's words reach Saul, who sends for the young man, and it's here that we see our third truth. The warrior who trusts God's power the warrior who trusts God's power. Beginning in verse 31 and stretching till the end of the battle, there is a resounding emphasis on David's faith. But at each point, David's faith is intended not to highlight David, but to magnify the power of God. Friends, this is the high point, the climax of the chapter. Notice with me how it unfolds. It happens again and again, and the repetition is compelling. To begin with, David recalls God's past deliverance. Look at verse 32. David makes clear what has been implied throughout the passage. Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. Again, Israel, David is Israel's champion. And yet Saul is not convinced. Saul still has that worldly perspective. And based on appearances, a shepherd boy can't kill a giant. David's not deterred. He continues to press for the opportunity. But but notice his reason why. Verse 37. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Friends, do you see how David's thinking works here? When he killed the bear or the lion, that wasn't merely good fortune. It wasn't his skill in battle. It was the Lord protecting him. And David now takes that past experience of protection and he uses it to encourage his present faith. Goliath is just another bear. He's just another lion. God delivered David then and God will deliver David now. You see, David understands the power of memory to encourage faith. By remembering what God did in the past, David finds strength to trust God in the present. Don't miss that encouragement, friends. When I fear my faith will fail, what do I do? What do I do? Psalm 9, 1. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. Recount. Remember. Not dig deeper to find more courage. Not come up with new strategies. I will remember. I will recount. I will remind myself of what you have done. Again, it's the value of that God-centered perspective we've been talking about. David reminds us, That God's past deliverance provides strength for present faith. The emphasis on faith continues as David depends on God's present protection. Notice verse 38. Saul agrees to let David go, but at the same time, Saul is still covering his bases. So he gives David a helmet of bronze and a coat of mail. Now that should sound familiar to you. It's almost the same description of Goliath's armor from the beginning of the chapter. You see, Saul attempts to turn David into a mini-Goliath. Saul's trying to match the Philistines strength for strength. But David's armor is not a coat of mail, it's the Lord in whom he trusts. Spiritual battles call for spiritual weapons. That's why David turns down the armor and heads out with only his sling. His armor is faith in the living God. David depends entirely on God's power to protect him. The emphasis on faith reaches the climax as David acts on God's promised commitment. He remembers the past. He trusts the present. And now he acts on God's promised commitment. As David approaches the battlefield, Goliath ratchets up the opposition. Verse 42, he despises David. Verse 43, he mocks David. And verse 44, he taunts David. But notice also the last line of verse 43. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. You see, for all of his arrogance, Goliath understands on some level what is happening here. This is a spiritual battle. Goliath believes his gods are greater than Israel's God. He curses Israel's champion just like he curses Israel's God. But amazingly, David does not turn back. Instead, David declares that he brings the greater weapon to this fight. Notice verse 45. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Friends, the battle is won right here at this moment. Everything else is a formality. Everything else is a formality after verse 45. David knows God will not allow his name to be blasphemed forever. The Lord promised to defend the glory of his name no matter the foe. In fact, look at the end of verse 46. Why will the Lord deliver Goliath into David's hand? So that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. That's David's confidence. That's the reason for David's faith. It's the Lord's promise to defend His glory and to fight for His people. And on the strength of that promise, David rushes into the battle by faith. Now, if there was any doubt that God's glory is the focus here, The way Goliath dies completely clears it up. This is my favorite part. So if you haven't been listening, you should listen now. This is my favorite part. The way Goliath dies completely clears it up that God's glory is in focus. Notice what happens in verse 49. Goliath is struck by David's stone and he falls face downward on the ground. Then in verse 51, David uses Goliath's own sword to cut off the Philistine's head. Picture it, face down, head cut off. Do you know what that sounds like? Dagon, the Philistine God. Remember chapter 5? When the Philistines rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off. We become like what we worship. We become like what we worship. Goliath boasted in the power of his God, but now he ends up like his God. Defeated, lifeless, and humbled before the one true and living God. David fought by faith, and his faith magnifies God's power. The Lord has won this victory. For David preaches to us in verse 47, the battle is the Lord's. Brothers and sisters, I'm spending so much time on this because it's crucial we get our application right at this point. If you want to know what my heart beats for, it beats for two things. The glory of God and the well-being of Jesus' people. And it is so crucial that we get this right for both of those points. Many times, David's victory is used to exhort Christians to have more courage or to display greater boldness. You too can charge the battlefield if you'll just believe and have courage. But imagine you're the Christian who's just heard from your doctor that the diagnosis is terminal cancer. Imagine you're the Christian who's gotten the pink slip, but still has the mortgage payment and two kids in college. Or imagine you're the Christian who can't escape the oppressive darkness of depression. If this chapter is primarily about you having more courage, then this chapter crushes you. Because the one thing you know at this moment that you don't have is courage. I'm not even sure I'm going to make it to tomorrow, let alone be bold. But mercifully, friends, that's not what this chapter is about. That's not what this chapter is saying to God's people. Far and away, the call of this passage is for Christians to look away from themselves. To live with self-forgetfulness and to focus again on the power of the triune God. Let me say it to you as plainly as I can. David kills Goliath so that you and I will realize we cannot win the battle. David kills Goliath so that you and I will realize our only hope is God. David kills Goliath so that you and I will remember the only way we're getting to heaven is by walking by faith, not by sight. That's what this chapter is saying. So here at the end, let me just press this call upon us. I don't know all that you faced this morning, but I want to know. I don't know the state of your soul, but I want to know. But let me tell you what I do know. That the Lord alone is God. That He has no rivals. That His power is unlimited. And that He fights on behalf of His people. And what He wants you to do this morning. Are you ready? What He wants you to do from this passage, the action He wants you to take, is to see Him. And trust Him. And treasure Him. And marvel at Him. He's not asking you to pull yourself up. He's not asking you to get stronger. He's asking you to say, I've got nothing, God, unless you fight for me. So behold him, marvel at him, treasure him, and then trust him. That's how God's people fight. Not with swords and spears and shields, but with faith that rejoices in the power of God. I started this morning by asking you to picture a battlefield. Imposing enemy on one side, fearful helpless army on the other, and one man, just, just one man, solitary champion in the middle, fighting for his people. That's the message of this chapter, friends, and it's also the message of the Bible. Israel was helpless before an enemy they could never hope to defeat. So David, the Lord's anointed, did what the people could not do for themselves. Israel was saved, not by her own efforts, but through the work of another. Like Israel, we were helpless in bondage to an enemy even worse than Goliath. Sin and death. An enemy we could never defeat on our own. So the Lord Jesus, God's anointed one, David's greater son, did what we could not and would not do for ourselves. He left heaven's glory and invaded the battlefield of our fallen world. And there on Calvary's hill, the Lord Jesus, armed with only trust in His Father, He had nothing. He had nothing but trust in His Father. And that was everything. Armed with only faith in His Father, the Lord Jesus conquered our enemy. It's so beautiful. David killed Goliath with Goliath's own sword. How did Jesus defeat death? With death. How did Jesus crush sin? By becoming sin for us. We have been saved not by our own efforts, but entirely through the work of another. Our champion, the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Samuel 17 is the gospel story, brothers and sisters, and praise God, it's our story too. Amen. Let's pray.